Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool top-rated hotels. Even though their name's Hotel Tonight, you can still book in advance for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. I was really excited to get to use it for my trip to Minneapolis in a couple weeks. It's that easy. Book Hotel Tonight in 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show. I am uh, honored to have the great chef, David Schlosser, from Shibumi in uh, downtown Los Angeles as the guest today. Welcome. Thank you. So... I wanted to have David here talk about his career because I think it's a, a different trajectory than most. Um, mm-hmm. But he has a restaurant that serves kappa cuisine. That How high on the 101 gold list were you? Uh, we started at number two on the list in Los Angeles. After. Which is pretty it's, remarkable it's right off the absurd, bat. Yeah. And there's so much about Japanese food that I do believe is misconstrued or misperceptions or quite frankly just overconfidence in understanding <laughs> from mm-hmm. not just people in LA, but now people across the world. Yeah. And you're one of the few people that have worked extensively in Japan and Kyoto. We met in Japan. We'll talk about that, mm-hmm. but also just like what's going on with uh, running a restaurant and all of the ins and outs. Sure. So um, how long have you been running Shibumi? Uh, we've been open two years now. And we had met a while back. A while back. Uh, 2010, nine? Nine-ish. Nine. Um, I think it was 2009, yeah, at, uh, at the CIA in, in, in uh, Greystone. Were you in with uh, Murata-san when I was there too? Yeah, I was actually helping him translate to other chefs there, and that's actually when you came up. I'm like, oh, I think, yeah, I know this guy. And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, explain something to you, and I kind of had whatever. Because I remember, well, let me backtrack. I think it's important to maybe start off with talking about Kikunoi. Right. Mm-hmm. A restaurant that is older than America. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's been open for quite some time. I think it's only open about 150 years. 150 though. years, but so like as, as a restaurant as... though, right? But like, yeah. wasn't it as a, a temple before that or something uh, like that? Actually, that was called Miyamaso. Okay. That actually, you know what, Dave, I'm not sure. It, I think Morata's son told me it was older. It was like 400 years old. You know what, dude, you might be right. Because he was I, saying I like how say. he was a youngster. Uh-huh. And we're talking about this guy that is uh, sort of a, the godfather of um, cuisine in Kyoto and sort of as a result, uh, sure. Japan. He's a great ambassador to Japanese cuisine. And he was one of the few guys that tried to enrich Japanese cuisine outside of Japan. And that's what I think makes him really special, trying to promote the cuisine in its true form outside. And he spent time working. <clears throat> What's Murata Sun's first name? Um, it's. T- right. Um. Wait, wait, no, no, don't worry. <laughs> it's funny. This is all important because. People from a Western understanding be like, how could you not know a person's first name? And you don't even talk about that. Actually, we all call him Taisho, which is master. We don't even call him by his name. Taisho is like a high form of calling someone a chef. There's yeah. all this honorific in his Asian. His sous chef is a buddy of mine. I didn't even know his first name after about two years. So this is the shit it's that's super like, interesting, right? Like, yeah. I was like, I don't, I know Murata's, and <laughs> I know Murata's first name, but I've never even yeah, thought damn, about now, what now the fuck you're, it is. You're killing me now. Okay. But like, 
just so the the audience or listener is like, what's wrong with these dudes? Like, why do they not know this? Because in Japan, you don't even call them by his name. No. You, you call don't. him by master or some oh. other honorific. Yeah, it's just more normal. And then even if you say his name, there's at least in, I, I, your Japanese is fluent. Mine is that of a dog. No. And <laughs> you have all of these things that you can add on to the name to show honor. So I, I guess maybe the, the backstory should be this is like, I think I was one of the few people to work in Japan and I didn't know that much about Kyoto cuisine or kaiseki ori or anything. And we'll talk about what kaiseki is too, but I sort of moved to Japan because I wanted to be an expat. I wanted to run away and just do something different. That was the first time. The second time was like, oh, I want to learn about ramen. And the, the, the weird irony was instead of learning about ramen, I learned about everything else too, right? And mm -hmm. just how great food is in Japan and the culture and the food history and knowledge. America today, or I would say the world at large for the most part with the internet, people know more about food than ever before. But that knowledge that we all have that did not exist pre-2000, mm. that was the sort of the commonplace culinary knowledge throughout Japan. I think everyone had like an incredibly high culinary IQ. Yeah, it's you just had part to. of the culture. Yeah, you had to, and mm. and that's what I fell in love with, and particularly because my grandfather spent so much time in Japan, it was probably the first foods that I started to love, because he was basically Japanese, and I fell in love with Japan, and not just love, I think a deep hatred too, in weird ways. Anytime I had a chance to go back to Japan, I would, and every time I would spend more than sort of seven, eight day, day, day eight, I was like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Number one is mm. like, it just like. When you're on a budget, it's hard to live and move around Japan, but you can still eat really well. And I just was like, would get any opportunity to go back. And I got to meet Murata and Kikunoi because they were doing this whole thing about umami, which was fucking crazy. Because if you think about in 2007, 2008, no one was even talking about umami. It's true. Which is, again, a commonplace word. It's like the, using the word awesome in English. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's so normal. And I went to Kyoto with Sat Baines, Claude Bosi, and Moro Colagreco. Talk about like huh. a, a group of amazing chefs. And we had the just this crazy time in Kyoto. We all staged at a variety of restaurants and uh, we learned a variety of things. It was one of the best weeks of food experience I've ever had in my life. And spending time with Murata-san, I remember seeing like there's a white guy in this kitchen. Uh -huh. And I was like, what, 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 like, I wasn't being racist. It's just like, it's so shocking. Sure, sure. I was like, what's that guy doing here? Mm. And what were you doing there in 2007, 2008, 2009? Um, I don't yeah, remember. It was very strange because they don't usually accept foreigners in, in those kinds of restaurants. I had a, one of my mentors, Sam Ota, he actually knew Murata, made a phone call down and said, this guy needs to come be here. And uh, boom, and the next thing you know, I was just there, Murata. You know, usually in Japan, someone vouches for you. That's a big deal. So he allowed me down there and uh, they put me in a little uh, dorm. Everyone lives on campus. Everyone too. lives on campus, unless you're more of a Sioux or, or above, then they'll put, you'll actually get <laughs> enough money to pay for an apartment. Otherwise, you have to stay in the Ryo, which is the, uh, the dorm with all the cooks. And we're talking like 25 cooks too. It's not just like a couple dudes. Uh, so it was a lot of guys. <laughs> And, running, running and, and, and I, I'll never forget, uh, how many years did the sous chef stay at Kikunoi? Oh my God. Yeah, this, the, the junior sous was there for 14 years. Um, the main sous, Hashisan, he was there for 18 years. And then the, the, 
Oh, actually, there was two other guys. The, the main executive chef under Maratha was there for 28 years. And then there was another guy there for 40 years that worked for his dad. And he's kind of like an ambassador. And he doesn't really even have a schedule. He just kind of comes in and out. So, I mean, you're there for eight years. You're a rookie there. And it's crazy. It's really important because I, I don't want anyone to feel bad if they don't understand this or these names are foreign or just doesn't sound like anything they quite understand, even if you're in the culinary arts here in America or Europe. You can't quite understand what the hell is happening or what we're talking about unless you're there. It's such a, there's no, there's no analogy, right? In terms of length and culinary understanding and the structure of the kitchen, the fact that it's like, I, I, I have a hard time describing what the fuck it is in Kyoto because it's just such a different thing. Yeah. And it's so established and it's been going on for decades and decades versus an established restaurant that's been open for maybe eight, 10 years in the US is a big deal. But there it's like 80, 90 years where they're doing it the same thing, same thing, same thing. And you can feel that throughout the space. It's very humbling. I'm trying to like not geek out too much or talk too esoterically about even the structure. Like one of the things that I marveled about the kitchen at Kikunoi, which is a three mission star restaurant, which is again, debatable in Japan, but they're serving a food that might not be delicious to the average food person. Would you agree? I would agree. Absolutely. It's very difficult to grasp. Even for a common Japanese person, they don't eat that Kikunoi food. Maybe a couple of times in their life, they'll save up for that kind of a thing. So... You know, taking that cuisine to a Westerner, it's even more esoteric. And you really, it takes a huge foodie to actually even understand what's even going on there. But like, it's like reading, um, I wouldn't say James Joyce novel, but there's a lot of patterns and puzzle pieces that are threaded throughout the meal from seasonality to color to, to texture to cooking technique. And that's really what breaks down Kaiseki cuisine. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, everyone does kaiseki in Kyoto, which is the home of kaiseki, but they do it in their own unique way. What I found so interesting about what Murata did was, since he was in the lineage of being a chef and like his, mm. his ancestors were like priests, right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. He went to Europe. Right, right. That kitchen is a facsimile of Tuagro. So it? much of it was. The really? setup. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I don't... Um, so when I, I mean, Moro, who is easily one of the world's great chefs today, uh, Moro Colagreco, he's based in, um, not Nice, the town right outside Nice. Um, he's first thing he said is like, oh, this looks like Tuago. Oh, wow. Really? And, and okay. Morata was so proud of that. Right. He had a huge admiration to France and, you know, those three mission star kitchens. And having that ability to, to sort of translate things around the world, I think made Kikunoi a little bit different than his peers. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it became, he was allowed, he wasn't the oldest Kaiseki restaurant or the most distinguished, mm-hmm. but what made him do something that was different that allowed him to almost become like, let's just say for someone that doesn't understand Japanese cuisine, particularly Kyoto, would it be appropriate to say that Murata is like the Paul Bocuse? Um, Gosh, you know, I could almost say, yeah. Right? Yeah. What a weird. I kind of say that. He's an ambassador, and I know there's a lot of three mission star. I don't even want to say that word, but very serious places in Japan that really look up to him as an ambassador for their own people on cuisine, and I think that's really cool. And I just had a blast, and it's not talking about Kikunoi or the whole thing, but I think it's important for what I believe to understand the shit that you went through to learn, right? Mm-hmm. So to backtrack a little bit, and we could talk about the campus at Mikikunoi and the fish butchery and all that stuff and the rooms. But I'm now realizing how, how sort of futile that might be. Because if you don't go there, it's really hard to fucking understand. Yeah. What 
drew you to Japan, first and foremost? Were you always cooking Japanese food? And when, when did you start to cook? No, not at all. Where are you I, from? I'm from LA, born and raised. I first started cooking in 95, a while ago now. And uh, I was into French cuisine, because that's kind of what you were into. Why, why, why French cuisine? Because I went to the CIA, and uh, that's kind of what you would learn, or that's what you would do. That was the image. But, know. but you know, the you're, 90s, you're, you were there. Yeah, I mean, but you your knew. expression is so, so priceless, because <sighs> if you explain to someone today, like a 20-year-old kid that's starting to cook, mm-hmm. and they say, wait, you worked at like old school French restaurants? Why the fuck would you do that? Uh, yeah. What do you mean? That's what you would do in the 90s. And you had to, if you want to work at the best restaurant, it was... Robbie French. It's crazy that people I mean, don't understand that that was your only option to work with the, the best only. ingredients, to learn the best techniques, and to like have structure was in a high-end French dining restaurant. That had the most structure. And that's what CIA portrayed, I thought. Wasn't and, and Spanish it, cuisine or Italian. No, as, but as like Fran- France created, I always say France, going all the way back to Fernand Poin and the Trois Brothers and Bocuse and all of those figures, they basically created like accounting. Right, mm-hmm. that every place does their accounting a little bit differently, but they created a, a standard that everyone can use. Yes, and that level of excellence is, I think, really similar to maybe Japanese food as well, and the structure and the hierarchy and so on and so oh, forth. Oh yeah, I definitely saw similarities there. When I was actually working in France, there was actually a lot of stages from Japan working there. That that's been going there, on there was, for years. Yeah, yeah. There's that connection there. And uh Japan, you know, they they look down on the West in many different ways. But <laughs> when it comes to food, they are really into the French. You know, wine and, you know, French food and they highly respect what the French do. And the structures are I think similar. Very similar. Yeah. So what restaurants did you work in in LA? In LA, I started actually working at a, a restaurant called 72 Market Street owned by Dudley Moore. That kind of got me into the world of French food. And then after that, I went to CIA. And then I ended up working for a chef called Ludo Lefebvre and, uh, at L'Orangerie. He just kind of arrived from L'Arpège in Paris and was this young... Can, it's important, I think, to, to interrupt. Can you give a backdrop? I think you can find out about Ludo. He's obviously one of the best chefs out there today and has been for a long time. What was so unique about Ludo's background? Oh, man. Well, it was cool because, first of all, Ludo was really young at the, when he moved to L.A. He was 25 when he took over Lingerie, which was the best French restaurant in town, pretty much. I, I mean, versus Spago, or, but whatever. It was a big undertaking for Ludo, and he was doing radical wild food. He used to work for Pierre Garnier, and he was Garnier was doing crazy food like that no one did in the early 90s. The triptychs of stuff. And- yeah, and like crazy sauces, and like, you know, this is like where Trotter was inspired by, and like all these— Top American so, dudes. Gagnier, that, so, massively important. If you don't know the name Pierre Gagnier, you yeah. should. Yeah. Because easily one of the most important figures of gastronomy of the past 50 years. Yeah. He helped modernize, you know, French cuisine and with science too and understanding and yeah. In completely different ways. And actually, if you can go back in the old uh, Iron Chef Japan days, mm-hmm. there's that classic battle with him. Uh, oh man, I haven't seen that. Yeah, one. that was so good. So good. Yeah. You got you gotta dig through. I, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but Pierre Gagnier was idolized. When I worked in Japan, uh-huh. every chef at the day, this is so now we're talking about 2002, mm-hmm. that was the guy that everyone wanted to work for. Right. 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 Lude also worked for Passard, Alain, Alain Passard at Arpege. Yeah. So again, probably maybe the most significant chef too now, arguably, oh, of the past top, 50 yeah, years. Big deal, big deal. You know, you guys can do your own homework and look into how he made his food, but he did it in a way that was very different. And who was the third chef that he worked for? He was actually working at Marc Minot's L'Esperance down in uh, Burgundy. Again, yeah. like, why is Minot so important? 
Gosh, why is he so important? I mean, so I actually were, used to work at L'Esperance. And uh, <laughs> Ludo and I, we connected because we both worked at L'Arpege and L'Esperance. Uh, so when I came back to LA, we just kind of... Anyway, what made Minot different, I don't know. It was just like high-end country cuisine. Um, a lot of fire now, though, right? Uh, a lot of fire, a lot of foraging that he's been doing forever. But three, had, three real icons in French gastronomy. Different, three, yeah. Di- very different, but progressive. Very progressive. And Ludo came out of that school. I think he's the only person to work at all three places. And then LA landed him. There was no talent like that French-wise, I think, when he showed up in LA in the 90s. Which is, again, crazy to me because people definitely did not... I mean, some people understood how important Ludo was Mm -hmm. because of his his pedigree. Mm. But this is before... Blogs and food it was too shit. advanced, and I don't think it was almost above people's heads. I was blown away when I was working there. I was like, "Wow, this guy this is amazing." So you're working for Ludo there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then what happened? And then uh, I ended up leaving. I went to, went and worked at a couple other restaurants, and then after that, my buddy and I took a trip to Thailand. We had a one month trip. It was the same price. We ended up doing a layover, two day layover in Japan. I was like, "Sure, let's go." Wait, let's the Thai it. trip was sheerly. It educational. Was just educational. <laughs> no, there was just an old friend of mine. Yeah, there was just a little Thai trip going on. My first time in Asia. This was in 2000. And we did this two-day layover, and I had sushi, like real sushi for the first time, and I had a couple meals there. Wait, wait, wait. You got to back up. What the fuck do you mean by real sushi? Because again, people uh, now claim, no, I'm not trying to hate on sugarfish. You're like, oh, this is, this is fucking really good. Right. Well, I guess when you sit down and you have 28 kinds of fish, <laughs> That's what makes sushi sushi. Like uh, like not the, using rolls. the terms netta and Yeah. You have such a selection and you're like, whoa, maybe in LA I'd have like eight types of fish or back then. Just the variance and the seriousness of the the chefs and everything was so clean and the wood was perfect and I don't know. It was a little sterile, but it just felt great in there. My that my one sushi experience that I basically cried. I was like, this is insane. I have to like know more about this. I go to Thailand, every day I'm there, I'm thinking about Japan, every day. I'm like, my buddy, I'm like, his name's Dave too. I'm like, Dave, I got to get back there. Something really is hitting here hard in me and I can't stop thinking about it. So I spent, like you said, every chance I got. And you've been cooking about five years professionally. Yeah, not that long, not that long. So most of my experience was just a little bit of French. And then I was like, man, I got to get back there. So after a couple of times going there, Man, I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And did you work in France before Japan? Yeah, I did. I was at uh, I was there for a year and a half working at uh, L'Arpège, L'Esperance, and Lucas Carton and Georges Blanc, which is four, All three, four Michelin 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 star. Star, right? Yeah, it was like four-month stages. <laughs> but again, that was a good like, starting Were you there when point. Pascal was at Arpege? I was. And pa- Bossi was there? Uh, who? Claude Bossi? Mm. Big dude. He has a... He's not taking over the Michelin building in uh, London. Anyway. No, no. Um, so I had an amazing foundation because this is, it was like graduate school after CIA. I'm like, this is a big deal. I mean, you had cooks that were 19. They were blowing away everyone out of the water in LA. How brutal was it at all um, four places? It was very when difficult. When I went brutal, I mean like um, the level of difficulty in the shit that you have to do. I mean, I'd get screamed at by 16-year-olds that were ranked above me because they were, you know, full-time. I was not paid. It was very difficult. I was... A foreigner to them. And what know? made you keep I, on being like, I got to learn more, I got to learn more? What was what was the goal to learn all this shit? Well, just after working at George Blanc, I was like, man, this is a whole nother level from like what I've been learning in LA or New York at CIA because, I mean, I'm at a three-mission star restaurant in France and I'm 
Man, we're, we're name dropping a ton of fucking chefs. This is, Sorry, this is, this is no, no, it's, it's great. overwhelming. No, it's not overwhelming because like I ask my cooks this shit all the time and they're like, I don't know who that is. Yeah. Why is George Blanc important? Oh my God. He, his sausage, his poulet a la creme. I mean, his dish with the, the breast chicken and he was the master of the chicken. Him and Bocuse were boys and three generations have been open over a hundred years. A uh, little inn uh, outside of Lyon. I mean, Lyon's like the real France, really. Right. That's like Kyoto to Tokyo. It's like- Danielle Balloud worked for real... George Blanc. Yeah. And many people passed oh, through man. that kitchen It's door. a big deal. It's It was kind of like a Kikonoyish right. at, at George Blanc. You know, 100-year-old places, 28 cooks, and everyone's wearing white top to bottom, and I'm just this, like, American dude. And I'm, I'm getting there. fucking excited because I didn't even know that you worked at these places. <sighs> yeah. And this is like, um, this is how cooks used to talk before the internet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He's like, fuck, what you learn? Yeah. Like, oh my oh, God, there's phone calls and notes. Yeah, and, and, the, and the postcards, like, man, I'm working with this fish. Like, what? Like, How'd you do that stock? And it's kind of geeky, but. Yeah, it's, you can go cool. down, but like, cool. I just don't, I mean, like, this is how it used to be. Yeah. I really believe that, like, this is the missing part now with the mm. modern generation because I can now just Google this shit and learn it. And yes, you can, but there's something about talking to the dude. Yeah. Then went through it. The smells, the sights, the sounds. Oh, man. The idea of a stock. I mean, it's such a big deal. Sauces, stocks, it was everything. The theory of, you know, Passard stock versus George Blanc stock, and everyone's all talking about it. And what's what's the point? Why, why, why? No, Asking well, well, I mean, th- I don't give this pod it, might be fucking incredibly long. Uh, it's okay because we're never, I don't know when's sorry, the last I time. No, no, no. I don't know when's <laughs> the last time anyone's spoken about this shit. Okay. We have to. All right. Your first restaurant in France was who? Was George Blanc. George Blanc is known for what? His sauces, poulet a la creme, his mastery of the chicken. Because that's, the breast chicken was started up and what's the, the street the breast in, chicken? in Macron, Macron. I mean, the breast? Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you're talking about something that- Chicken. It's the most is, famous chicken in Europe. I many mean. people don't understand or know or heard of what a breast chicken is. Okay. Yeah. Why is it so much better? I don't know. It's, just, <laughs> it's really it's, fucking it's amazing. It's you really could almost, I was thinking of doing yakitori with it or something. Yeah. You, probably, you can eat it sashimi. It's, it's very high level chicken. So besides the breast, I think the other great chicken comes from Japan. We'll talk about that another day. Okay. So next chef. The next chef, I went to L'Esperance up in Burgundy. He called well, Mark him up. Mark Minot. Mark Minot. I went and worked for Minot for four months. And again, a 28 chefs brigade, you know, 50 covers a night on 28 chefs. You're, you know, the brigade insane. system is structured around the military system and it's divided up by each station from Poissonnier to Saucier and Entremet. You, like, it's basically like a football team, right? Sure. Um, Mark Minot, icon. And then you move four months, we like. And then I went and I got a job in Paris at the very serious place called Lucas Carton. Why is that important? Oh, Super man. important restaurant. Well, that is where Passard trained under. Okay. And, and who was Alan, the chef there? Alan Sandros. And was, he he's recently big, passed. Yeah. Yeah. He had like. Nicest fucking guy. This is pre-Ducasse days. Yeah. You know, it was like, he, he was um, a very, very important chef in, in Europe, in France. He was iconic. Kind of Bocuse level almost. Do, do, Alain Ducasse took it over when? Um, Not that no, long think, ago. Did he take it over? Did he take it? I think he did. I don't know. Shit. Yeah, he turned more cash, right? It was more of a bistro-y. But Senderens was, besides being one of the nicest people, mm. I didn't know him, but the few times I got to meet him, he seemed incredibly nice and thoughtful. Yeah. was He was the first chef that I know of or read about that took beverage and wine to a whole nother level to his food, right? Yeah. The wine program was extremely next level. I actually wasn't really that familiar with wine back then. But um, no, just very influential in so many ways. Um, just the way he does his sauces, execution. Again, 28 chefs in the kitchen. 
just learning how to love and the passion of what's going on there. Everyone's just so into it. You got 100 resumes in the chef's office. Chef's always talking about his resumes like this. It's like, you better be happy you're here because I got all this to <laughs> die in the work here. So it was an honor. It was an honor to be there. Uh, I was just like, again, in the foreigner, just running around. I don't even know why I was there. And then, um, last And spot, then, lastly, was Larpege. Which is like, that arguably was, the, the most iconic restaurant. Right in, now. Right now. Yeah. And people don't get it or they get it. Yeah. It's a very polarizing spot. Yeah, he was very unique in which he was the only chef at the time where he didn't make any stocks in the whole restaurant. Everything was natural jus coming out of liquid coming out of the meats once it's seared or whatever. He was really into the purity of just the, the protein itself or the vegetable. He was very modern and forward thinking. There are two chefs that I put into the pantheon of great chefs for me over the past hundred plus years. And I put Farhan and Alain Passard, both at the opposite ends of the spectrum, but I think after the same thing, mm. both in their careers, I always look through analogies in music, for instance, when Bob Dylan went electric, he was like, fuck it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, enough of this. Uh-huh. I, hate, I hate how people are typecasting me and pigeonholing me. I'm going to do something different. Farhan going full-blown insanity with food, taking it as far as it possibly could go yeah. and breaking the understanding what food could actually be. And Passard trying to get back to purity to the way it has not been yeah. understood, right? Maybe with... Um, he was against the grain. But like when he was like the Jacuso, or the, when he was like, fuck it, I'm not cooking meat anymore. Right. People went ape shit. Yeah, people freaked out. That was like 96, that. right? Yeah, it was actually right after I left. It was... Um, no, I think it was 2000. 2000. Yeah, in 2000. To have a chef basically proclaim... Not today, if you did it 2018, people are like, we have a big deal. Right. But you have arguably the biggest dude in France saying like, I'm not cooking fucking meat anymore. Yeah. And France is based on meat, not, <laughs> not fish, meat, land. And people and went- That was a big deal. I mean, a lot of chefs went into foraging and gardening, but he went even like double down on that shit mm-hmm. with his own farms. and Yeah. The product in-house is, was insane. Actually, George Blanc, the product wasn't even that good. It was, it was more like the manipulation of the technique where Passart was more- Pure, yeah, purity. Yeah. Like people couldn't or, understand. I would remember having conversations with people that had dined there or other cooks about like, how could you have a, just a fucking beet and balsamic vinegar mm. on a plate? Right? Like, better be good. I mean, it better yeah. be good. Yeah. And if you dropped your preconceived notions that uh, something like that couldn't be great, like mm. it could be transcendent. Right. But if you thought that it had to be manipulated and it might not be your cup of tea, but here's another thing I- I've learned is that you can't really compare it to the rustic nature of Italian food or even the cleanliness of Japanese food because what he was doing, in my opinion, is had never been done. It's like, even though it was just a beat on a plate, mm-hmm. there was weirdly a lot of technique into presenting it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the simplicity, it was definitely the most simple of any place I was at in France. Was it one of the hardest places you worked at? Um, you know, they were all pretty hard. <laughs> all pretty, you were definitely stepped on. I was in the corner for hours doing, you know, stuff I didn't want to be doing. So I apologize. Like, uh, I just geeked out a little bit because whenever I talk to someone that spent time in those places, I'm like, mm. Dude, like, tell me more. This yeah, is this is catnip for about. me. There's, it's just, yeah, it's a rarity to see someone at that time go mm-hmm. work at those restaurants because how did you find out where to work? So at CIA, I picked up the book that called Gomio off of this this guide pre internet right, and the book had a list of the top fifty restaurants. It's in like France. the alternative Michelin Guide, <laughs> yeah, based on a I twenty point scale. I basically wrote a letter and co- made copies, fifty copies to the top fifty restaurants in France. 
five months before I graduated and just sent it out. I had about- Were you industrious? Were you fucking organized as shit? Were you like the best no, student there? No, no. I was just a little older, I guess. I was a couple years older when I graduated than everyone else. And I was like, after CA, I got to go to France. There's no other job I can work at. This is the only option for me. Well, you're like, fuck this. I, I want to go, go work at a three missions restaurant. Right. Why, why don't I try? Because I'll- might get it. So 15 restaurants said no. Um, the rest didn't reply and two said yes. And one of those two was George Blanc. Wow. So that's obviously I went to the, the three Michelin. And then after that, after four months, I asked him, can I go work at L'Esperance? He's like, oh, I've known him for 30 years. Of course, I'll just make a call and boom. So I was able to like work my way through once I got my foot in the door. Because I worked with cooks around that time that were still thinking this is the information gap then in the Early aughts, late 90s, I th grew up thinking and heard that Tollivant was still the place you wanted to work. Oh, right. right? You know what I mean? Old like, school. Old yeah. school. Like, go work yeah. at Tollivant, which is yeah. this- um, Paris, uh, very serious, stuffy, table- like, <laughs> Yeah. And then, like, that, that is, like, the epitome- The Guéridon. Yeah. And, like, Ducasse was still on the upswing because everyone thought, oh, that's just glorified Italian food. Right, right. Right. That was all that debate. And this yeah. is what cooks were talking about. They were like, yeah. that fucking guy got two, three mission star restaurants, you know, one in the mountains, one. Right. No one did that. No back one did then. that. Mark Verrat did the same thing. And there was so much misunderstanding of what the fuck was going on. But where you wanted to work in France was for Lan Passard, for Gagnier. Yeah. No, George Blanc is again a little bit older, more established, but right. how the f that's crazy to me yeah. that Just, you did that. Cause I can count on one hand. Mm -hmm. I think the amount of chefs that were actually like keeping their ear close to the ground and working at the like the really cool, hip, cutting mm -hmm. edge places. And you were one of them. And that's yeah. why it's fucking cool, man, to talk to you about that Thanks, shit. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I mean, again, you're talking less than five. Yeah. Maybe Carmelini, George from Aldea. Uh, maybe, do you know other Americans that went through all that shit? Uh no, not that I know. Michael Anthony? Michael Anthony he... spent a little bit of time at Arpege because he's really okay. good friends with Pascal. Oh, okay. But not it's that many. Not that many, man. No, no. And now you can't find that many American cooks because the, the, there was a 10-year period where they just stole, Americans stole everything and they're like, you're a fucking out. Right. No, no more Americans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we fucked it up like a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, I think Passard's cauliflower caper dish, raisin emulsion dish. That's hilarious. That was everywhere. <laughs> Again, we're I've talking inside baseball, menu. but like this is an iconic dish of the caper uh, cauliflower, caper cauliflower raisins. Yeah. It's just a beautiful fucking dish. But yeah. that's hilarious. You know, you're, we're talking about chefs that have created gastronomy in a way that you are eating, you just don't even fucking know it. Right. It runs so deep. And such an honor to actually be around these minds. And I wish the younger generation would understand how important it is to be with the right people early on in their Everything's career. already been done before, man. And you gotta, that's why I think it's so important to pay respect to the people that came before you and people that work there, man. Like, no yeah. bullshit. I've been doing this pod now not that long. I haven't been this excited doing a fucking podcast because <laughs> I'm simply like, fuck, yeah. this is the best shit to talk about. Yeah, I wish I could talk about it more with <laughs> people that, are, that understand it or they get it, they get it. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Le Creuset. As a chef, we always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients and knowing your suppliers. But using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. 
With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality in the design, and they've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories it creates and the style it expresses. They are the first to introduce color to the kitchen and are pioneers in enameled cast iron, which features the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. All cast iron is made in France since 1925 in the original French foundry, and each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsman hands. Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty. Bold colors and timeless designs allow for expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. I've been using Le Creuset for I don't know how long since I started cooking. I've been buying his presents for my mom, decking out her kitchen, my own home kitchen, use Le Creuset. It's the first sort of home cooking tool that I saw that was also used in professional kitchens. In France, in England, we use them in our restaurants, in all of our restaurants, and we now use them at Major Domo. It's easily one of my favorite uh, pots and pans to use because not only do they look great because you can customize your color, they braise really well, they roast really well, you can actually put the whole thing in the oven, like the pot with the lid, and it has a, I don't even know the technology, just nothing melts on it. It's unbelievably good. And it is probably one of the few tools, kitchen tools, I think that you can use in a professional kitchen that is just as good at home and vice versa. Not many tools out there go between home and a professional kitchen. Anyway, check out the new Indigo from Le Creuset, just launched in September. Indigo is the truest blue inspired by the iconic natural dye. The rich, deep hue of the Le Creuset's Indigo is universally authentic. A timeless, true blue and bold neutral in styling cultures around the world. We got a whole set of Indigo at Major Domo and they just are awesome. They really pop. It's like the best kind of blue. Get free shipping at lecreuset.com slash Dave with promo code Dave, D-A-V-E. And now back to my conversation with Dave Slosher. So like you fucking paid your dues. What happens after you leave Arpege? You're like, fuck it. I'm going back to America now. I went back. Well, I was just ton, dude. I was tired. I was really, really tired. And I was really exhausted. And you're not living glamorously. You're living like a fucking. Dude, it was real. It was six days a week, you know, lunch, dinner, service, 8 a.m., 11 p.m. 90 hour week. Yeah, it was long. And, and dude, everyone was doing those hours. It wasn't just me. After a year and a half, I was dead. I was dead. I'm like, I'm done here. A lot of drinking, a lot of cigarette smoking. Not th- there were cigarettes and drinking, but I was so, so tired. So after t- I would literally have <laughs> one beer and like one smoke, and I'd be done. I can't. There's no late nights for me. Maybe on my day off, but I was like, I got to get back. My standards were so high after working with these badass geniuses that I didn't want to work anywhere in LA. I had nothing inspired me until I met Ludo. But did you have a personal life or was it, this is again, something that's a misunderstanding today. Like people don't understand or like I, when I say people don't understand, let me rephrase that. I think it's hard for people to understand how someone that was probably like shiftless for the most of their lives, all of a sudden becomes super organized and like endeavors to improve themselves as a cook and low profession for the most part. Yeah. And then basically sacrifice everything to get better at a job that is relatively like... Dave, I didn't see France, okay? <laughs> I didn't see France at all. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't kiss a woman. Like, I didn't... There was no dating. There was. It was serious. I was skinny as fuck. I, I didn't... It was tough. Complete sacrifice. Yeah, it was a sacrifice. I was tired. I was Do you done. think that it was worth it? It was so worth it. Can you really honestly say that now? Oh, man. Yeah. After learning what I've learned and just the discipline that I want the people younger to understand, which is what I try to do daily that, yeah, but would I do it for another year? I don't know. I was done, man. I was, 
Yeah. So you come back. really tired. You open up with Ludo in LA. Yeah. So Ludo's doing his thing at La Rangerie, modern, radical French cuisine. I just came back from L'Arpège. She was working there less than Are a you year. speaking French to each other yeah. in the kitchen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm speaking so French you, to him. So I worked to you. I was like, I would be like, fuck this guy. <laughs> he basically was I like, get out of here. Like, I don't want to talk to you. And I started saying, I just came back from France. I was working at L'Arpège. And he turned around and he's like, let's talk. And boom. So I sometimes in kitchens and, when the chef speaks another language, <laughs> you can never trust the fucking American that speaks another language because they whisper in French and you don't <laughs> understand what the fuck they're talking about. So obviously I can imagine that you became favorite son immediately. I was. I was favorite son. <laughs> he put me in a headfish station. Everyone was pissed at me. I had one of the top positions. <laughs> right and I told him about these new sauces Pissard was doing and he's like, oh yeah, let's make that. It was hilarious. And uh, so we, yeah, we, we vibed early on. And this is what, 2006? Um, this is in 99. 99. Yeah. So after this, where do you go? After that, he hooked me up working at a, a restaurant called Balthazar at the time. It was a restaurant based in LA, not the one in New York. It was a short stint. I was just there less than a year. And I basically bailed. And my buddy's like, let's go to Thailand. And that's now we're going back to the Thailand story. And that's kind of when Asia, the world of that whole world, switched my whole dimension of life. When was your first job in Japan? Well, gosh. Oh, it, was not, it wasn't until 07. Right. So there was a gap there. What did you do for seven years? So I go to Japan. I go back. I'm like, I got to get a job in Japan. I didn't get a job in Japan. I found a job in Thailand. So I go to Thailand. <laughs> How hard is it to get a job in Japan? Very hard. It took me to 2007 <laughs> to get the job. But so I, the, my ass I, had no, I had no way in. I had no entry point. I had they no don't language. Want, they don't want, this is so hard to you, explain to people. so hard to. The Japanese culture, they don't want your fucking like pestering. No. They don't give a fuck. No. So the, I was blessed by my best friend, Nick. He was working at a place called Ginza Sushiko, which was Masa's, Masa's place in Beverly Hills. And I'm like, Nick, I want to go to Japan. And I can't get a fucking job. And he Nick, was, that is now in- And Shuko. Yeah. One of the great sushi spots. Yeah, in- amazing, serious restaurant in New York. Uh, Nick, at the time, was a little you know, young guy working with Masa. And Masa, at the time, was like the best Japanese chef in the country. I mean, his restaurants were 400 a person 20 years ago, uh, 10 customers a night. I'm like, Nick, can you get me in? So I ended up being the first foreigner to work for Masa back in 2001. So you, you spent time learning Japanese and Japanese techniques there. Yeah. So that's kind of got me into the world of Japan. And once I worked with Masa, I'm like, man, I got to get to Japan. But, but, but before, uh, before you talk amazing. about six years at Masa, You've now probably been at the top of your powers, you think, in Western food and at least French and modern French cuisine. I thought I knew my shit, and Masa made me look like shit. He's another <laughs> level of <laughs> chef. Very, very skilled. How frustrating was it to be like, wait, actually, I suck? <sighs> yeah, it took a minute. But once you saw the, the, the cooks there and their knives, I'm like, dude, this blew away everybody in Paris when it came to like the knives and, and the actual skill. It was only the chef that knew how to make like the genius stuff, but the cook's level was so high at Masa, it was insane. He got approached by Thomas Keller at the time to get out of there and go open in New York at Time Warner. At the time, he's like, let's go, let's go. And then he gave it to Urusawa. And, and then he gave it to Urusawa. I told, I told Masa, I'm not going. I'm like, I don't want to go there. I want to go to Japan. He's like, fine. And so you go to Japan, you stay here, you should work for my uh, predecessor, Urusawa. So I was just working at Masa for four months. At the time, I bailed. He closed. So your nice kills were good. Yeah. In, in, in the year 2000, good. Good. When you 
after five years, what's the difference, right? Like, wow. I tried to explain this to cooks today because I always ask a cook, like, how good are your nice girls? And anyone says they're fucking great. I'm like, it's never going to work out with us. You know right, what I mean? Right. Because like, you don't know knife skills until you go to Japan. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just oh, a man. whole nother fucking level. It's literally like being like high school basketball versus the dream team, 96 Barcelona Olympics. You were yeah. like, what the fuck? No, it's a big deal. The way they look at knives and they perceive it, the quality. I mean, we could talk about knives for hours. Hours. But hours. It all makes sense after the fact when you realize, oh, that's my tool. I'm a craftsman. I'm going to take care of my shit and invest Why everything. Why is it so my- secondary in, in, in kitchens? I'm so <laughs> pissed about that. Get it. Yeah. It, 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 this is an extension of who I am. So I'm going to treat my shit tight. I'm going to fucking love it. Mm-hmm. And they're like surgeons, man. Yeah. And yeah, when you see that, that is even like, not even like the top, top places, basically anyone, even like the diviest izakayas, they have the sickest knife. Skills. Yeah. There's yeah. no peeler there. There's no machinery. It's right. all just human power with sharp ass shit. Mm-mm. And I just don't understand why it cannot be translated globally. Yeah, I know. I don't know, man. It's, it's sharpening. To- bef- you know, they're not sharpening like during service or right before. It's like I'm lotting time before and a oh, lotting time yeah. after. After service. After you, every you use. Out and much. then you yeah. get into it for 40 minutes, three days a week. I mean, it's, <laughs> you, they don't do that here. No. And uh, yeah, like Urasawa, I'd have to come early every day and work on the knives at least 10 minutes a day. Otherwise, you're late because <laughs> there's no way you're going to keep it as sharp as his stuff, which is perfection. Um, so it was a lot of focus that I had to learn before I think I was even ready to even go to Japan. I think I was a little ahead of myself, but after working for these two masters. And how much Japanese, how was your conversational Japanese? Uh, When I left Urasawa, it was pretty bad. I knew all the fish, of course, but I couldn't speak anything pretty much. Could you read kanji? No, I was studying hiragana, katagana, but no. Uh, Basically, when I got a job in Japan, it was was minimal. And Masa got you the job in Japan. Where was that place? Well, I actually got a job initially cooking for the U.S. ambassador to Japan. And that's kind of how I got my visa at the time. Are you making this dude burgers and shit? Kind of. Very American, the ambassador (laughs) was. Very Texan. So This is George Bush era. Yes. This was the Bush's guy. (laughs) Um, Let's not, yeah. But I was just honored to be there. I was honored to be in the country. You know, after work, I'd meet with some friends. We'd go out every night. And uh, I was in Japan. I'm like, I made it. I was here in the country. Can you explain to someone that hasn't been to Japan? And even if you've read it now online, because here's the crazy thing. When you live there, when I live there, you had to fucking find that information yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. And no one's going to talk to you about it because nobody speaks English. <laughs> they don't watch it. And now with the fucking smartphone, you can actually find shit. Yeah. They don't, when I say they, excuse me, I apologize. I'm not trying to sound condescending. It was fucking impossible to find anything in Japan because of the backwards ass fucking addresses. Yeah. The taxi drivers would get lost. And I'm like, wait, this is ridiculous. How can a country so advanced have a address system that was like a thousand, a thousand Yeah. Very old? difficult. I, I can't mm-hmm. even explain what the fuck it was, but. Just getting information was hard being a foreigner. It was an honor to be there. It was all like English teachers and then like Wall Street finance guys. And that was it. And so being like a culinary guy, it was I was very in a unique situation out there. I was so honored because I knew there was so few foreigners actually living there. And like, what what were you diving into like food-wise? Um, what, what, like, cause like, just, I guess just everything, man. I was at the library every weekend. I was talking to my buddies. I was trying to learn the language immediately so I can sit at the counter and actually talk philosophy with these guys. Because who else is going to teach me? The internet didn't have anything back then in English. 
There was no sites like that. And so I'm sure you're buying a lot to, of Japanese books and yeah, like that's crazy. a whole nother level of shit. Yeah. The cookbooks and culinary like literature in Japan Whew. is such such a big deal. I'd go to like vintage Japanese bookshops and like ask for the food section and it was like, whoa. Like the encyclopedias and very detailed. There's nothing translated like that. Nothing even remotely close to dedicating. That's how serious Japan is about food. When people say, why is Japanese food culture better? It's because they take it way more fucking seriously than anyone else. True, true, man. (laughs) Yeah. They just don't fuck around. Yeah, they don't fuck around. So after the embassy, what's your job? What's your next job? After that, I actually got a job consulting for a restaurant called Kombachi, Global Dining. They had about 30 restaurants. I was kind of like an advisor over there, helping them with their menu development. So you've now been cool. cooking 10 years. Yeah. Most people would be a sous chef or a chef by that point. Yeah. And you were like, I got more to go down this rabbit hole. I got to go deeper. Yeah, I got to go deeper. I'm like, how do I get to Kyoto? How does this work? Why Kyoto? Um, because the Kanto, Kansai region, very different cuisines throughout yeah. Japan. Um, and then Tokyo, you're spending much of your time in Tokyo. I just feel like Tokyo is based on with, you know, sushi. The whole town is based on sushi when it comes to food. That's where, that was the heart. That's where it was all invented. You know, soba is obviously very important in Kanto, but I really wanted to go to Kansai because that is where- and Kansai is the southern region. That is the cultural root of Japan with tea ceremony, flower arrangement, kaiseki. And when I went there just for a weekend and stuff, I'm like, wow, this is, this is very different. This is where I want to be. Uh, you just mentioned two things that may not be to the listener related to food, mm. but very much so. Flower arrangement and tea ceremony. Oh, very go, connected. Go two minutes, go. Okay, sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, the tea ceremony is kind of the, the foundation of Kaiseki. That's kind of where it started in the 1500s when the formalization of Japanese cuisine started. And it was through its religion. Most fine dining does not root into its own religion. So that's another thing that makes Japanese food different. It was actually started in the, in the Zen temples. They were formalizing cuisines and Senno Rikyu took this concept, showed it to the aristocrats and boom, it became outside of the temples and that's when Kaiseki was born. So when we were and, talking about Murata and religion, that was the evolution and the transition. It was like yeah. the high art. So that's why the, to the, me- The monks were doing, yeah. yeah. Now that's why Kaiseki has always remained an elevated art form to people. It's never been like ramen, you know what I mean? Yeah. The um, dish the dish you had to pair, there had to be a corresponding flower to arrangement to it depending on what month it is. So the cooks have to know that. And flower, flower arrangements has a lot to do with the seasonality and the plating that's intricately tied into Kaiseki. Yeah. It's and all about a feeling, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And also like the samurais practice that shit. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they did. And tear ceremony. This was all about like Again, there's not a comparison really in Western culture. To- no, not when it's connected like religion. It's just very, everything's connected. Right. It's very connected. So tea ceremony, flower arrangements, and, and like having tried both of those, it, it, I highly encourage someone if they go to Japan to experience a real out, what, three, four hour long tea ceremony. Yeah. It is going to be hard on your knees and your back. Mm-hmm. But like, I think you'll leave with a deep appreciation of Japanese culture for sure. Agreed. And matcha and the whole shit, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. Man, I'm getting, I got to go to fucking Japan (laughs) just talking about this. Let's do it. So how do you get down to Kikunoi then? So Kikunoi, um, one of my mentors, Sam Ota, he owns a publication called Hoterez, which is the biggest hotel restaurant magazine in Japan. 
And he actually went to CIA in the 70s, and they connected me with him. And Sam's been helping me out for many years. I told him I want to go to Kyoto, and he's like, well, Murata's a buddy of mine, so I think that's the best start that we should do. And um, yeah, so Sam called him up, and Murata-san said, no problem, have him come down here next month. That was it. So again, not to go too much into your past, but I'm sorry, I just find it fucking fascinating because Thanks, people need to appreciate, man, like you got... <laughs> A chef in America that happens to be from Los Angeles that has no one has your fucking CV, man. No, not one fucking person. And you cannot no. sound like it's not conceited for you to say like, yeah, I think I have probably one of the strongest fucking backgrounds, mm -hmm. maybe in a history in American cuisine. Seriously, come on, Dan. no, yeah. no bullshit. No mm -hmm. one's had that much shit in Europe. Mm -hmm. No one has worked for Kikunoi. There's right. a couple Americans now. Yes, you were the first. Well, Derek was. The oh, first. Yeah, I there's met a, that fucking a guy, guy. Derek. Yeah. Is he still there? He's married uh, to he, the. No, he he went to Sixty Nine Leonard. Oh shit! That's that guy. Him. That's the that's guy. Him. He married um uh, a Japanese. Woman. Yeah, yes. Japanese woman. Uh, dude, he was at Kikunoi almost nine years. That's right. I think yeah, that's was, another. Story. That guy's the real deal. Yeah, I mean, he switched though. He went to sushi. Sixty Nine Leonard sushi. <laughs> so you talked to him about that. I, I need to figure that out one out. So, <laughs> so one of the things again about Japanese cuisine that's interesting. Besides Kiseki and Kyoto being so rich in food. And again, I think as people discover more of Japan, Japanese, like it's, it's a way more accessible than before. Mm. People mm. are going to stop obsessing over Tokyo and go outside. Yeah. And they're going to discover what all the different kinds of foods that are there. And it's, there's, we could talk for a week. Mm. One of the things that I thought was fucking amazing mm -hmm. when I discovered it there, when I was working there or the, the stage thing that I was doing was Couple cuisine. Yeah. I was like, what? More approachable. More approachable. What? Yeah. Who's the old dude that like his family founded Kapo? He's really good friends with Murata-san. God, the guy in Osaka? He looked like the bad guy in Karate Kid too. <laughs> Gosh, I, I'm at a loss. Old dude glasses, big dude. Anyway, his family like had like the original Kapo cuisine and now he has like several of them. Mm -hmm. And a Kapo restaurant was a less formal version of Kaiseki. Still with the same intensity, but it's much more casual. Kaiseki is like very, very formal. Yes. As an extension of tea ceremony. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kapo is, what, how would you describe? Generally, there's a bar and most of it's hot dishes and most of it's based on Kaiseki and they dumb it down. The focus is the exact same, but there's less rules and it's generally a la carte. And the cooking's done in front of you. Cooking's done in front of you. And Kaiseki is always tasting menu. Kapo doesn't have to be. You can and, just order off the menu. And it's not an izakaya? No. But it could be, could be, could could be it's a little, general, a little nicer because it's, they take it more seriously. Izakaya is more fun. Would you, would you say uh, that maybe like for someone that doesn't understand, like, like izakaya can be like amazingly good food and there's high-end izakayas. Mm, really, mm. some of the, I think one of my favorite restaurants in Tokyo is a high-end izakaya and I'm not going to rename. Yeah, what's that? Oh, I don't, which one? Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. No. That's where I want to go to eat all the time. Okay. Uh, never going to reveal oh, that. Disclosing never that. Tell gonna, me later. Never, I'll tell you later. Okay. Um, but Kapo, again, is something that you see, again, mostly in the Kansai, Kyoto area, but like, it's just more fun. But it's more fun. More serious. I don't know. It's just like, it's hard to describe the difference. It's sort of an izakaya, but it's it not. Is. It's a nice izakaya with rules. How about that? It's like a, uh, the best end, highest end gastro pub. You're not going to use plastic plates. Right. You know, there's certain things you should need to do. It's nice. Yeah, it's nicer. It's nicer. 
Shek average is about in the middle, right in between Kaiseki and Izakaya. It's a little higher. And, and yeah, how is the it. meal broken down a la carte, right? Um, generally, it's broken down with different foods. You'd have something raw, fried, boiled, steamed, and grilled. So when you write a couple menu, you have to have a little bit of each category. And that's what you get basically in terms of the breakdown of cook- culinary technique throughout Kaiseki. Yeah. Actually, Kaiseki, you're right. You have to have all that in a Kaiseki meal. And, and that has to be paired with seasonality. And like, yeah. it's literally like writing a very stringent uh, novel, right? It's more serious. Yeah. Capo, choose your own adventure a little bit. Still the yeah. breakdown of the categories of grilled, steamed, nabe, Fried, like all grilled. that shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You never worked at a Capo restaurant though. No. Just Kaiseki. But you, that's the shit you wanted to eat. I felt like that's what I wanted to eat, man. That's, Kaiseki is too serious. You know, you do that once, twice a year, even when you live in Japan. You don't do that. No, stuff. I don't know. I don't, you never meet people you, that eat that shit. No, you don't eat that stuff. <laughs> but it's good to know and it's learned. I almost think it's a little bit the dying art, really. I don't think the younger generation's taken to it as much as. I mean, I, mean, I love Kaiseki, or, but I'm not like, oh, that's the best thing I've ever had. Cause it's like, no. I don't understand how to unpack all that shit to appreciate it. <laughs> right. I need, to, I need a server to explain everything. I'm like, oh, and now I'm just like not even into it anymore. So the capo is a good bridge, right? Because it gives you some rules and structure, but not just where you can fuck around and it's just fusion-y everywhere. You know? I don't know. Let's take one more break to hear from our sponsor. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge. I know we're constantly trying to find the best people to staff our restaurants, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate to the site within the first day. With the results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to our show. So you leave Kikunoi when? I left Kikunoi in 2009. How did you tell Murata that you're leaving? Well, I asked him if I could go work at uh, Miyamaso, which was another serious Kaiseki spot up in the mountains. So it was 2009 when I saw you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it was 2009. And Miyamaso is a very important restaurant. It's a very important restaurant being that they've been foraging for over 100 years. So I love Renee and all that. But they've been doing it longer. They, than- they've been doing it for a ve- They make chopsticks out of the chestnut trees. We pick the branches and make chopsticks out of that. You know, we go get the mountain vegetable. There's no fish from was the this ocean. The one, was this the restaurant where the, they have a river running through the kitchen? Which, which one is that? Um, that's not, like the oldest restaurant in the world. Oh, that, that's Yote. That's Yote. That's, that's like 1100 year that's, old uh, restaurant. No, I think it's like 450 years so, old. So, <laughs> so dumb. So, so, <laughs> so dumb. But using only fish from the mountains. So no ocean fish. So it's very true to your... So like where Rene was inspired. I think he even, I'm sure he's been there um, because that's Nakahigashi. 
which was the chef owner. Um, so you spent important. time there. I spent time there. No foreigners ever worked there. No English. And your Japanese zero. now is now it's yeah. I'm like flowing now, and now I'm like how able difficult to hang. is was katakana? I think to me that's the hardest part. Oh really? The, it was kind of hard. It wasn't too bad. The kanji kills me, but you know, katakana is very hard. Yeah, yeah. Spelling something as erebeta when you can spell it <laughs> elevator, right? In katakana, mm-hmm. I can write it out as elevator, but it's wrong. That's right. really frustrating to me. <laughs> I'm like, not Damn, gonna, I knew that. I'm I knew not going to write it as erebeta. I'm going to always write it as elevator, which is why I got terrible grades. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so mm, mm. then what's next? So yeah. So after working there. What, what, what's the next step for you to be like, fuck it. I'm going to move back to LA and I'm going to open up a couple restaurant. Um, One last place. So after there, I got a job over at Arashiyama Kicho. And, and I've never heard of that. You that? haven't heard of Kicho. Mm-mm. Kicho's um, been open for about 150 years. Um, That's it. Jeez. That place is connected with the government. They have plates and a lot of cultural artifacts donated to the restaurant because it's a national treasure, that restaurant. Dinner there is about uh, 600 per person, no drinks. We would do 15 covers at dinner, and there was 18 chefs in the kitchen. Was the food that you wanted to eat? No. But the skill of the way they prepared the food, we would all just geek out when you were there. There was a guy that was there for 11 years, and he was like, Dave, you are the third foreigner to ever be here in 11 years. So you better be very honored to be here. Uh, <laughs> so I was what, like, what, Did they shit. ever test you when you um, were all these kitchens? Like, this fucking white guy better have good knife skills. Yeah, absolutely. I had to come correct. I was there an hour early every day, working on my thing, head down in the corner. I didn't even want people to talk to me. You know, I was very scared. I was very scared. You and, earned, and you earned their respect. Yeah, because I knew my shit. I studied their history. I would ask them the right questions. My knives were looking gorgeous and I could speak. So they were like, wow, he, I, you could never walk in from America to go to Kicho. They would laugh at you out the kitchen. But because of my training, working with Masa and Urusawa and my, my knowledge and my, all my reading, they took me in. They took me in. I'm just going to throw it out there. You're probably in the top three best resumes in the culinary arts in America has ever produced. Dave, come on. I dare, <laughs> I dare anyone to fucking like compare. Mm. Seriously. It's fucking ridiculous. Thanks, Dave. Really ridiculous. Yeah. Not some knucklehead that me was like, if I was as good as you, I would probably would have stayed in the fucking game <laughs> like that. Right. Um, so you're like, fuck it. I, now's the time to go home. What, yeah. What, 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 so what, I had, a, I had, were a, you like continuing so Japanese now? Well, I was close, man. to just never coming back. Yeah. I was at a point where I'm like, God, I need to just be here. This is crazy. But my friend introduced me to this guy in LA. He was an investor. He's like, Dave, let's do something. I already wrote a business plan a year before, before moving back. And you knew you wanted to do Capo. I knew I wanted to do Capo. Kaiseki was way too serious, but I wanted to be true to Japan and not go fusion, not do Izakaya. Capo was really focused and uh, yeah, presented it to him. It did not work out, but I did move back. I was extremely depressed. My friend Nick opened up a restaurant called Netta on West 8th Street at the time. He invited me out there to help him open it. And then and that Netta, they left Netta and then they reopened and then they opened Shuko. Shuko. Yeah. And then at the time after Netta is when I met another investor and then he was like, Dave, let's do this. And after helping him opening up Shuko, boom, we started preparing Shibumi. And what's the name Shibumi mean? Shibumi means creative restraint in the arts. Why is that so important? Uh, it's about toning it down, not being so flashy, not with 10 types of decoration. I'm so sick of that. Let's go like Larpege, you know, like the beet, you know, or just the one ingredient and do it really well. Buy it, source it really well. 
buy the good salt for that thing. And, you know, I don't know, just really focused. It's like a woman with a black dress. She doesn't need all this stuff, you know? She can look just as hot as someone else. It's the way you wear it. Right. You know? So I thought was great. It's to, to remind the chefs to tone your shit down, keep it, you know, less creative and it'll show. The confidence that, will that's show. That's how I know you spent way too much time in Japan, man, because one of the ways, in my opinion, that Japanese culture has flourished, at least creatively, is they intentionally put fucking restraints everywhere. Yeah. And it can be suffocating those constraints, whether it's culturally, right? Like, yeah. everything is this rigid fucking cast it system. It sucks, kind of. Yeah. You're and, putting in a little... And that repression doesn't sometimes happen, but it can happen like in food and woodworking and all yeah. these different ways, which is why you're like, that is incredibly fucking like amazing. Probably Focus. because it's like, has to be channeled out somewhere. Right, right. And restraint can be incredibly creative. It's a, something I try to tell cooks all the time. It's like, you can be more creative with restraint than without. Yeah. If you know what you're doing. But how do you know what you're doing? You got to, you got to learn well, what rules to break. That's yeah, how, you got to spend huge, time Dave. in the fucking game. You need to work with some masters to know what to do and then what not to do. So yeah, it's hard. So you open Shibumi. Yeah. And this is where I'm not an advocate for most things authentic, but I do believe that there's things where authenticity is incredibly important. And that's when it serves a purpose as educating to a customer base, something that they may not know. Mm. And you're not exactly authentic capo. No, no. You're using local ingredients. You are getting stuff from Japan, but you're doing it in your way, but it is very fucking authentic. It's mm. very rigid mm. in mm. it, but it's also like an expression of you. Mm. That I think is like when authenticity is at its best, when you're still trying to preserve and move it forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. I ain't there. And after it got like number two on gold and, yeah. and, and all the, the, the press started to come, mm -hmm. what happened? You were busy? We were packed. It was overwhelming. And the staff was like, wow, this is weird. We just opened and Mr. Gold recognizing us and all these industry and people loving it. And yeah, it was cool. We're very, very busy. The press obviously affects you. And I think a lot of this is a reason of two things. Is um, when I ate there, I couldn't understand why it wasn't packed to the, it just mobbed. Yeah. When you came, Dave, it was a little later. You came after what? We were open a year? Maybe? Right. Yeah. And I was like, holy fucking shit. If I knew that a restaurant like this existed, I'd work here. <laughs> I literally was right. like, oh, fuck, man, I don't have to go to fucking Japan. I'd go here first and mm. then I'd go to fucking Japan. Because right. like, I was like, oh my God, mm. you're doing all the cured shit, all the fermented shit. You're doing mm. all the delicious things that may be challenging to some, but is like comforting, made with technique and precision. And I was like, fuck, you know what dawned on me then was, I don't think people understand what the fuck they have. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. I, and you're not dumbing it down. No, I don't want to. That's and that, the problem. That's the problem, but also like, that's why I wanted you on the show, man. It's like, fuck, I think you have one of the best restaurants in anywhere. You have one of the most decorated chefs in its CV. Mm -hmm. Someone that is a true Los Angelino, born and yeah. raised, mm -hmm. went out to the world and bringing it back. Mm. And... I was like, you know why? I think it's hard for people to understand because they think they already know what Japanese food is. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, again, trying to be condescending, but like, man, you're talking about a sliver of Japan with, that most people never get to the Kansai region. No. 
They don't. They, they, don't. they don't. It's like in. literally saying uh, food in America is only New York. Like, no. <laughs> right. And you're you're trying to do something, endeavoring to do something a little bit different. And that's why I wanted to like share with everyone out there. Like, you have one of the best restaurants and you can learn a lot from eating there. Mm-hmm. And it's like very Japanese, but very American. Mm-hmm. And it's not trying to straddle a line of being fusion at all. It's American because you're being you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's not just about the critics, Dave. It's not just about you. It's about the older generation Japanese people that come in and almost have a tear, shake the, my hand, bow, and leave. These are the people that almost are more effective than somebody like you or Gold. Or, because if I can affect them, I did it the right way. Like crazily. And that's kind of like my job's done. I could just kind of walk away from Shibumi. After that expression that I would get from, that I've been getting from these people, that they don't pay the bills, Dave. You know, what pays the bills is everyone else. Yeah. You know, 10% of my guests are Japanese, 15 max. So what about the other 85? They need to appreciate and enjoy it too for us to stay open and be successful and have longevity as a business, right? Because this is a business. It's a business, man. And It's a business. And that's so, another hard thing to understand because I don't understand how all the restaurants in Japan stay open. Yeah, there's so many of them. And they're never that busy. So many of them are not like that busy. Like, yeah. Japan's the only place where it's like, you know what? We have an AT restaurant. I think that's too much. Let's get rid of two seats. In fact, let's a year later, you know what? Let's get rid of one more seat. Mm-hmm. So it's only five. And you know what? Let's get rid of lunch service. Let's do that. It's right. fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. It is the dream in so many ways. And I think this is this weird creative conflict now when you're bringing something back mm-hmm. and remaining so pure. And I don't want you to be the first guy through the wall. Mm. I would pain me in 20 years, 15, five years to be like, oh, there's like 25 couple restaurants in LA. Right. You have that shit now. So finding that fine line, Dave, of approachability and authenticity is something that I'm trying to work on right now. How do you, I won't say dumb it down. How do you make it more accessible? I don't know. We'll talk later. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure yet. I mean, you could just come in and get rice and... Maybe and be, and yeah. pork is it's, it's so no. good. You can get a pork and a white rice and miso soup. How much simpler do you want here? But that's still, you know, I don't know. What uh, what do we need to do to get people to understand that mm. you're making real Japanese food that people eat? It's not the cheap shit like a like on the street, but like mm-hmm. this would be like, hey, let's go out to get something to eat and like like have a meal. I admire so much what you fucking do. It's incredibly difficult. Mm. And I want people to fucking appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. Well, I'm going to move forward and try to come up with some concepts that encompass what we do at Shibumi. At the same time, embrace the customers at the same time. That's the goal. I mean, I'm struggling to figure out like what the fucking compromise is. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I know that you're wrestling with it. I am. Because... Compromising might mean compromising everything you worked so hard to attain knowledge and technique. Mm-hmm. So I think the only way is to be like, you know what? Like, fuck, I got to do my part as best I can to be like, I think you have like a real treasure here in Los Angeles. It's down, mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find anything like it. Mm-hmm. It's unequivocally like good. Mm. <laughs> it's packed with talent, technique, great product, and you've thought about this more than anyone else. Mm. What do you think like the next step is for Shibumi? Dave, you seem to, I think one of your great talents is you have this great skill to 
get the masses or the people to love you and create this approachability yet different at the same time with your bases. And I think that's something I look up to because at the end of the day, you need people in your space. Right. But you don't want to obviously dumb down. You have a standard, Dave. And I know that's high. And I know it's serious because you have a lot of eyes on you. It means you got to focus, but you you do this great job of getting the masses in. And uh, that's why I look up to you. So oh, man, I'd I'm, like I'm, to, I'm honored. Like, I feel like because I never was good enough to get to the places that you went to, I had to learn in a completely different way. And I really genuinely believe that the restaurant, I hate this, right? Like I had these conversations with, with Wiley, right? Mm-hmm. Like it pains me again when I see that the greatest American talents of our day have not been fully appreciated by the general public. Mm. Not, it's like no one wants to be appreciated fucking after the fact. No. God damn. But that's fuck what happened that. with Wiley, you're saying. Oh man, it pisses me off. Right. It pisses me off so much. Well, he was way advanced, man. He was way ahead of everyone at the time. No one understood what he was doing. I mean, so I want to do, make sure that shit doesn't happen, man. And like, maybe I'm one of the few people I understand because like I've been there and I've like know the same people that you're talking about. Mm. So maybe to me, the only other way is to like educate people to be like, oh, this is, this is what it is. Like, maybe it is like, you don't have to fucking change. Maybe just call Murata, get him out of here. <laughs> I mean, all let's, of all, our, let's all do something. Everyone else has to change. Yeah. Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. Yeah. When it came to education, um, Bourdain once said that you have to do it in baby steps and you got to do it focused, but slowly because nothing's going to change like that. And I think he was right. I think maybe that's it. And you have to do it slowly. I mean, you're not going to put gyoza on the menu. You're not no. going to put like fucking ramen. You know what I mean? But like, mm-hmm. That's just not going to happen. I, I really believe that the, the those people that go out to eat need to like, this is almost supporting the arts, man. Yeah. <laughs> it really is, right? Like yeah. you have an exhibit here and you got some of the best shit out there. Go, mm-hmm. get out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Drop your preconceived notion. Even if you live in Gardenia and Torrance, like, mm-hmm. hey, like this is actually more Japanese than any other Japanese restaurant I can think of in America. Mm-hmm. So- well, I got nothing that. but like mad respect for what you do. And so that's it, man. Like, uh, I don't know if there's anything else to add. It's not, it's not a somber note. It's like, man, like I stand behind that restaurant, man. And it's not just me the, the late Jonathan gold felt the same fucking way. Yeah. Um, this is what made him so fucking amazing is that he, it was clear to see, Oh, this shit is fucking important. Yeah. So, whatever I can do to help and support, I will always do that. Dave, thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. And the, the least I can do is tell the world or those are listeners, like, I don't think there's anyone that has your credibility or work experience to, to translate this into the food today. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate just talking shop about all that shit because I swear to God, I haven't been that excited. I love that shit. The inside baseball shit about how people worked at all these restaurants is is just like, catnip for me so and shibumi is what's the location we're on eighth and hill uh in downtown instagram is what it's shibumi dtla and what you're closed what days we're closed mondays only dinner only currently what would you say people should order when they walk in what should they do you get the menu what do you think i think they should start with an asahi ice cold so i'm going again on the record this is so much japanese shit I love Japanese beer. I love how they drink it. I also love like how they drink it in Brazil. It's fucking incredibly cold. You have 
uh, Asahi beer machine, machine. Yes. which again may seem like not cool. It is fucking really cool. <laughs> it's so delicious. It's the coldest fucking beer you Dude, can you get. You had like six time. of them last I time. I had six of them last time. Yeah. I couldn't stop. It's so good. Right. <laughs> so get an Asahi or get some sake. And what would you nibble with these? Uh, I would get maybe some karatsumi, some fermented seafoods. This okay, what, so when you, this is the problem. When you say karatsumi, mm, fermented seafood, like... We got to find better ways to like, I think, talk about this because yeah, it, it is what do. it is. It is fermented. It's this, okay. This, Japan's about the art and science of umami. This is really what it comes down to. It's so much more than sushi. So when you step in, the first thing you need to have is the fermented seafoods because that is, it's an umami bomb. It's an umami explosion. Satiation without fat. You know, but like, how I mean, do like, you do that? It's better than potarga. People eat potarga all the fucking time. Yeah. They it, eat ikura all the time. Mm-hmm. They eat fermented seafood products all the fucking time. Mm. Tin seafood, a lot. Tin seafood, totally. You are getting best in class, in season fish with roe. Yes. <laughs> and we're curing it six months to a year ahead of time. And we're preparing for you. <laughs> what are we like, doing? It's a so, lot of fucking work, man. I know. When you, when you were telling me about the, I think it was a mullet roe, and you're like, yeah, this is, you were so fucking pumped. Like, this is when they're eating this, this, and this, and they're this fat, and like it, I can't believe I got this shipment in. It's the best. I oh, was like, right, right. It was the winter. Yeah. Winter. And I'm like, I was like, dude, this guy is so passionate about this. He's trying to get the best of the best of the best mm. to make a dish that very few people quite understand. I but, know, it's, but it's so important, Dave. It's so important, it's so important. because it's, it makes drinking sake more delicious. Yeah. It's salty. It's a little bit sweet. It's mm-hmm. pungent. It's umami. And it's like, mm-hmm. I almost feel like you can't, Drink sake without it. Yeah. No, no, no. You have to have it. It's too salty, strong, umami bomb. The sake just works so well with and it. And what's the Japanese name again so people It's understand? called chinmi. Chinmi. Yes. This is the fermented delicacies of Japan. We can't stop any of that. We got to, I think my, my two cents, we got to change that terminology. Okay. Yeah. How, what do we, how do we do it? How it's do like a, do yeah, I, don't, I don't even fucking know, but like uh, fucking but, the, people eat batarga. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. That, cured roe doesn't sound good. What am I going to, mm, mm. but it's important. It's fundamental. So that's, mm. it's, it's, it's drinking food. Yeah. It's drinking food to get you started. So you have your beer, you have some fermented foods, you have maybe a little cup of sake. Maybe you just make up a fucking name. Yeah. <laughs> make up a fucking yeah. name. Yeah. All right. Let me, th- let me like, get back uh, to you. Let yeah. me get back to you on that. Um, yeah. And then we do our seasonal tofu that we make in house. So maybe get a, get a tofu dish. Um, what makes your tofu so special? Um, well, we're buying Meiji soy milk, and Meiji's has produces the best soy milk in California. Period. I think organic, based in Torrance. They've been there for decades. All the sushi guys, everyone vouches for Meiji and love them. So we've been buying from them for many, many years. Get some tofu. Get some tofu. After that, maybe get a grilled dish. We have a right now. We have a salmon trout on the menu, which is smoked with the cherry bark, which is delicious. It was just sort of like. Um... Would you say a signature uh, dish of Shibumi? I could be a signature dish now. I'm trying to take it off, but everyone I loves mean, it so much. Yeah, because uh, like, I'm sure you hate that dish so much. Yeah, I'm kind of done with it. I'm <laughs> done with it. Uh, I want to put some some stuff like sardines or anchovies on the menu, and then I do, and then people don't like it as much as the fucking the other dish, so I put it back and fuck. So and then uh, and then um, from there, um, so try to get the smoked trout dish before it leaves the menu because it is really tremendous. Yeah, you can get some wagyu sashimi. After that, um, we're doing wagyu from Kyushu, and we actually have Kobe beef. Um, we're the only restaurant in LA to have our license. To can, serve you, can you talk about that? How many people fucking lie? 
everyone lies. And they've been doing it for years. And the Kobe Beef Association has been trying to sue and they lose every time and ask for Doesn't the Doesn't that anger you that you're playing the right way and not breaking the rules and everyone else is? <sighs> yeah, it bothers me. I still just got to put my head down and, and do it the right way. Do it the right way. But the right way is like people not knowing that they're like cheating. Like, yeah. it bothers me that people think that they're eating like real shit. Yeah. And it's not. I know. Very well, few people actually get, get the real shit. They do. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks. I got to deal with that daily. Um, but yeah. Then so we, no, no, let's just give you the time frame. Like, talk shit about everyone else right now. Okay. Talk shit about everyone else that sells bullshit fucking Wagyu and Kobe. Or just bullshit anything. People need to be proud of what they're serving and understand what comes into their house. Are you going to serve that to your four-year-old daughter? Then don't serve it to these 80 guests tonight. Okay. You're going to serve that food coloring or this process, this or that. Um, you should do it the right way. And you should treat your guests the same way you're going to treat your little daughter. Um, it's the same, same thing. And, um, and, and this tells me, this is so much of who you are as a person because you cannot cheat. No, it's it, no, it doesn't. It goes against the model. It's against the model. You I, could easily cheat, and you can't. I can't. Not for this. Well, yeah, but that's integrity, not, not for, man. Not for what I'm doing. Not in man. cooking. Like, like that's what makes cook so fucking weird, man. Like, yeah, when you pour your heart into this, it's like this is what it is, and there's no deviating from it. Yeah, can't do it. So you get the beef, and then what? And then from there, I like um, the I like the, the koji marinated stuff. Oh, the koji marinated pork. We buy this incredible pork um, from Idaho. We marinate that in koji, which, which is, is what koji is a fermented rice and is the base to Japanese cuisine. It's actually the most important ingredient in Japan. And misos and sake. It's what you used to make everything. sake. Yeah, miso. All and that. It is a. It's, it's a mommy, just, It's just a mommy bomb, man. It is a mommy bomb, and, and it's, it's rice. Delicious. It's delicate. But another thing too, maybe with the meat course, like I understand, I'm lucky enough to understand, like. Your meat courses, they're really supposed to be eaten with rice. Yes. The meat courses are not really meat courses. They're rice courses. Oh, it's a good way to put it. Right? Yeah, we have the pork jowl, very strong, fatty Japanese bacon, basically. And that's really good with rice that we cook in an iron pot. What kind of rice are you getting? We're getting organic koshikari outside of Sacramento. And that's what I actually want to eat all the time, man. Like, yeah. That's just good rice. and just good rice. Some yeah. salty meat. Some yeah, pickles. some good pickles, some some miso soup where we we make the miso in house. Oh, it's so different the miso. The miso at the store is a lot of salt, so you can't put a lot in it. Otherwise, your soup's salty. This I can put triple the amount because I put less salt and less and salt. It's more umami now. Less salt is important um, because you're going to get more action on the microbial level. Yeah, because more salt means you can control it, and it's not going to be as delicious. It's going to be more monotone. Correct. So those that can make homemade fermented misos and soys like that, mm. it's going to be more delicious. It's literally going to be more delicious because the saltier it is, it's just not good. It's kind of flatter, yeah. So the miso soup is delicious. And again, like I don't want to talk shit, but do customers for the most part that are not Japanese know how to eat miso soup? No, they don't. <laughs> how do you eat miso soup? Well, you sip it, you drink it. We actually do a custard of egg in there. So we actually like serving it with a spoon. Traditionally, you won't serve it with a spoon, miso soup. You just, you pick it up and then you have chopsticks to eat any of the solid foods that are in the soup. And uh, it's usually served at the end of the meal. Yeah, totally. With your rice and you're pumped. And uh, yeah. Not, not your meal. It's, Maybe you get some sashimis before that. Yeah, and, that, that and, was mm. delicious. And I just think that you get this progression without any of the pomp and circumstance that's kaisenki. And then you can get you know, out of there in 60 minutes, man. Yeah, you actually can. And we have guests doing that too. To get it's, a couple it's, things. It's, and, I told you the first time right there, I was like, why? You, you could charge way more fucking money, man. You were putting a lot of love in this fucking food. Yeah. 
And I'll leave with this. I, the first time I went there, so like I went to cooking school with Josh Skeens back in the day. I heard, I heard. And uh, Josh Skeens of the Three Mission Star Restaurant Saison. Um, Love it. Uh, some might say an acquired taste for some, <laughs> uh -huh. like myself. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but Josh is, uh, she's a fucking genius. Dude, he's amazing. He hates everything. Mm -hmm. There's very few things he likes. Really? And he was like, you got to eat here. Wow. Okay. That's the only recommendation I've ever gotten from Josh Skeens. Really? Have you known him for how long? <laughs> Since 2000. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's no joke. Not, not hyperbole. That guy has impossibly high standards. And it was the only restaurant that he's ever said, we, we got to eat there. Wow. So if it's good enough for one of the best chefs in the world, Josh Skeens, who has a preternatural understanding of all things incredibly delicious, I highly encourage you that it's probably good enough for you too. Cool. Anything else you want to add, man? I think that's it, Dave. Thanks for the love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We chatted for a long time. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, go visit Dave Schlosser's restaurant, Shibumi. It is delicious. And uh, open up your imaginations to what Japanese food could be. Because it is Japanese <laughs> in yep. the oldest traditional sense. Thanks so much, Thanks, Dave. guys. Thanks for having me.